You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Uh, I told Al I don't normally give lectures, uh, especially when the format is, a, is kind of a public debate. Uh, in, the fi- in the finest tradition of the Greek philosophers, we get questions and all that. Uh, I remember Socrates, great philosopher that he was, used to go around lecturing people, giving, giving advice all the time. And they poisoned him. Uh, <laughs> my, my favorite, though, is a man for whom this school was named, Jack Kennedy, speaking to a group of financial people. He said, if I weren't president, I'd be buying stock right now. Business guy in the back said, yeah, if you weren't president, I'd be buying stock right now. So. was a nice man, modest, kind, a man who actually wrote thank you notes. Trouble was, some mistook niceness for weakness. The question, are you tough enough, was asked of him repeatedly. I equate toughness with moral fiber, with character, with principle, with demonstrated leadership in tough jobs where you emerge, not bullying somebody, but with the respect of the people you led. That's toughness. That's fiber. That's character. I've got it. And if I happen to be decent in the process, that should not be a liability. The one-time fighter pilot found himself depicted on the cover of Newsweek magazine as a wimp. To change his image in New Hampshire, he traded the coat and tie for a tractor hat and a windbreaker and drove every piece of heavy machinery he could find. It worked. He won the Republican nomination and made two promises. First, read my lips, no new taxes. And second, an administration based on American values. I want a kinder and gentler nation. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Bush beat Michael Dukakis in a landslide, but by that time, the world beyond our shores was changing. The Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union was imploding. Because of his temperament and long experience in foreign policy, Bush kept belligerency and boasting down, and the situation cooled. And in 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, Bush put together a remarkable multi-nation coalition that drove him back to his own borders. Bush's popularity went through the roof, and his re-election was a foregone conclusion. But as the nation's deficit ballooned, he bit the bullet and raised taxes. The move worked and the economy got better, but many Republicans never forgave him for breaking his no-new-taxes promise. And he lost the 92 election in a three-way race with Ross Perot and Bill Clinton. In time, he saw sons George and Jeb elected to governorships and George as our 43rd president. 
George H.W. Bush was perhaps the most modest man ever to hold the presidency. His proudest legacy, he always said, was that his kids still came home to see him. And his greatest achievement was marrying Barbara, who died earlier this year after 73 years of marriage. Margaret. I love that look back. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to see so many people with whom I served in Washington, a part of our team. They were good people. Uh, And I was blessed to have a team uh, of such wonderful minds, men and women of of great integrity, great honor, motivated only by service to country. Um, Those of you who have worked with the ones I'm talking about uh, know that I was very blessed, and I believe that our nation was blessed uh, by their service. And they serve with honor. Uh, We had a clean administration. They served with dedication. And I was proud to have them at my side as we confronted a world in the midst of historic change. When the Berlin Wall fell, I was talking to the dean about this a few minutes ago, when Germany was unified and remained in NATO, uh, when the Soviet Union actually came apart at the seams, imploded, uh, and gave way to a democratic Russia, and when our Warsaw Pact dissolved before our eyes, Uh, The Cold War receded into history as Eastern Europe was free, the Baltic states free. Uh, And let us not forget that during those four years when I was privileged to be your president, uh, a lot of good things happened in this country. I will readily concede I made plenty of mistakes, but uh, we cleaned up the SNL crisis, huge expenditure, but now it looks back, it appears it was the right thing to do. Uh, cleaned up our environment with the Clean Air Act revisions, uh, expanded more opportunities for 37 million Americans with disabilities when, in a very bipartisan way, Congress passed the ADA, and I was privileged to be the president that signed it, and some in this room, uh, Dick and others were, and Roger Porter, uh, very instrumental in the, in the passage of this. Uh, we forewent the reading of lips, uh, by passing a budget agreement <laughs> that uh, did put firm controls, really for the first time, on discretionary spending, uh, federal spending with a cap for the very first time. And as I say through it all, I had a great team at my side. A lot of folks, you know, they ask me, well, what's the legacy? I said, you know, that's a tough question. Historians will sort that out. But in my view, his legacy, Maria, was accomplishments. He got things done. Uh, when he left office, the economy was growing at like five, six percent. You know, the Berlin Wall came down. Eastern and Central Europe freed from the yoke of communism. Apartheid in South Africa was eliminated. Success in putting Saddam Hussein back into Iraq. Noriega apprehended. So many things in a short period of time. And and the domestic front as well. So accomplishments. He did so much in four years. He really did. He, he left the country in a better place than, than when he arrived. And when he first chose you as, as his running mate, uh, you wrote an op-ed in the journal, George Bush, Be Prepared and Be Loyal was the title of that. You talked about after uh, yourself and, and the president uh, were inaugurated on January 20th, 1989, and he discussed Ronald Reagan a, a bit to you. As, as Ronald Reagan left, why did you choose those words, be prepared and loyal? He said that to you. 
He, he did. We talked about, you know, what the quail model would be. I said, look, I very much like the Bush model. And he says, no, you have uh, your own model. You'll do your thing. It'd be different than mine. I was very, very fortunate uh, to not only work with him as a great individual, but he had been vice president for eight years. And he knew the good things about being vice president and the not so good things about being vice president. So that was a blessing uh, from my perspective. But what he said to me uh, on the uh, steps of the Capitol as we said goodbye to Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, he turned to me and in sort of his you know, low voice, he says, that man was very good to me. And I can say that today, that man, George Bush, was very good to me. Oh, how wonderful. And, and you were just 41 years old when you first uh, <laughs> were in the job, but you had been in Congress for a long time since you were 29. So you had a great perspective in terms of the congressional dealings. How did how did President Bush deal with the Congress in terms of the, the different factions and and uh, and determinations on each sides of the aisle? Well, it's interesting because we had a Democrat Congress. So, you know, we had to deal with Speaker Foley. We had to deal with Majority Leader George Mitchell. Uh, so we had to <clears throat> reach across the uh, the aisle to get support for what we wanted to do. And look at what we did. You know, we did, got budgets passed, uh, clean air, comprehensive clean air legislation, disabilities. And then the resolution uh, from the Congress, uh, in the, in, particularly in the Senate, the House was easy to go and uh, take Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and put him back into Iraq, because we had to pick up 10, 10 Democrats in the United States uh, Senate to support us to get a majority vote. And we had the majority leader, George Mitchell, was opposed to us. We had the chairman of the Senate Armed Services, Sam Nunn, was opposed to us. We had a lot of very important people in the in Senate that were opposed to us on this resolution. And so we had to work hard to get Democrats to support us. And, you know, sometimes divided government works. Uh, it clearly worked in our administration. And you can get things done if you reach across the aisle and work hard. And, and even on a personal level, he did things without theatrics or drama. I'm, for one thing, Jim, completely delighted to see that history is appreciating the accomplishments of George H.W. Bush. And, and you know, that started uh, before he died. I can remember three or four years before he died when I was with him and I said, you know, Heffy, I called him Heffy because that's uh, Spanish for chief. Uh, I always called him president when uh, he, he was president and when we were in the, anybody else was in our uh, company. But after we got out, I, I had a tough time calling him George anymore, so I called him Heffy. I said, you know, Heffy, I'm delighted to see history. You called him Heffy? Heffy. Heffy. That means chief. Yeah, you know, I know. For, for you. It's a, yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. So I said, I'm delighted to see history giving you credit. Yeah. for what you accomplished before you're gone. He said, is it? I said, yes, yeah, sure is. And that's how modest he was, of course. But he was a, a really uh, uh, incredible president from the standpoint of his accomplishments. Some of that got hidden by virtue of the fact that he was a one-term president. Mm -hmm. But he was a very uh, consequential president in those four years, yeah. particularly in foreign policy. Yeah. What would you add to that, Secretary Tittles? Well, I think, and I am too, am pleased uh, that the recognition of 
the accomplishments of our 41st president are really being brought into focus because they were extraordinary uh, for the four years that he served. And I think we were reflecting at the table a little bit, too, on how he handled the whole dissolution of the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and the ending of the Cold War and the stories have been told about not dancing on the wall. And I think that level of understanding of your counterpart and longtime adversary uh, and understanding the culture of the Soviet people and what they were coming out of really shows his instincts and his insights of how to set the stage for a future relationship. And I learned and took some of those lessons away from watching him and how I dealt with foreign leaders, and in particular how I've dealt with Russia and how I've dealt with uh, President Putin over the years about not ever putting them in a position of embarrassment because it's part of their culture. And if you want to win and you want to have a relationship where you're going to deal with difficult issues, I think it's important to keep that in mind. And it was a lesson I learned early on by just watching how he handled that. Welcome to our show on George Bush and leadership. And you've heard a little bit uh, from uh, about all the different accomplishments and the kind of person that George Bush was at our, our opening of our show. But one of the things he did was build an extraordinary team and arguably one of the best foreign policy teams of any president really in the whole history of the country. It, you know, maybe Richard Nixon's and obviously going back to Lincoln or somebody or Franklin Roosevelt. But this team really changed the world and they only had a four year period of time to do it. Some may argue that they were really reacting to events. They managed events. And they did it in a way that didn't lead to the usual bloodshed that happens when you have such momentous changes in the world happening all at once. So help me God. Congratulations. George H.W. Bush may have sat in the Oval Office for just four years, but his legacy will last for generations. In foreign policy... This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Bush's coalition building during Desert Storm was unprecedented, uniting nearly 40 countries and ending the conflict in a matter of weeks. A playbook for all presidents that followed. If you want to know how to fight a war, take a look at the way George Bush fought the first Gulf War. The Cold War ended on his watch without a shot taken or a bomb dropped. He didn't bloat because it would not be in his nature to bloat and someone else's misfortune. That same diplomatic restraint also shown when the Iron Curtain collapsed. On the day that the Berlin Wall came down, we all went over to the Oval Office to tell President Bush that he had to go to Berlin. You wanted him. I wanted him to go to Berlin. And he said, and he said, what would I do? Dance on the wall? He said, this is a German moment. I thought, the President of the United States, to step back, this is a German moment. I think he deserves credit for getting the world off in the right direction at the end of the Cold War. The Cold War being over was not an excuse to pack up and go home. It was an excuse to build a new world of cooperation. Time will prove that he was right in wanting an integrated cooperative world of Strong security, but lots of freedom, lots of democracy, lots of interaction between people. 
On the domestic front, Bush is credited for making improvements to the Clean Air Act and signing the Americans with Disabilities Act, critical legislation that revolutionized access for millions, including Bush himself, when he suffered from Parkinson's in his final years. That community, I think, holds my grandfather up in a hero. He wasn't their likely hero. You know, they have all these big kind of liberal um, advocates that advocated for their movement. But my grandfather's the guy who got it done. It's not just through things like wheelchair access, but it's changing the culture of how people with disabilities, you know, can shine and let their abilities shine and have jobs in places where they might not have jobs. So I think that's an awesome legacy. You see, this was a very momentous period of time. And this team that, that George Bush put together really managed it well. So what I'm going to do is let you hear from them as they talk about President Bush and they talk about the period of time and the things and, uh, and, and issues that they faced. And it's going to be an interesting, like an all-star cast of folks. James Baker, uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell. Um, there's an ambassador here that people may not know, too, that I want to mention. His name is Edward Dejerian. And I may be messing that up, the pronunciation up. Um, and we're going to look at Brent Scowcroft, who has passed away. Uh, but the, a lot of this was uh, things that were said during the time that President Bush passed away in December of 2018. But you really do get a sense, A, for the man, George H.W. Bush, and for the times and the greatness of the team that he put together. Well, I think Secretary of State, because the world changed fundamentally in those four years. You look at all the things that happened and look at look at George H.W. Bush's record as president, foreign policy record during that time. The world changed. The world that my generation had known all of our adult lives changed and changed fundamentally. So that was the the, that was a wonderful place for me to be at that time. A lot of things were happening. We could get a lot of things done. Treasury was a very fine job. I loved it. As I say, you're not badgered with people trying to take over your turf. So um, what do you think was the reason you were so successful? Was it that you were trained as a lawyer, that you are harder working than everybody else, smarter than everybody else, more clever, better surrounded by other, better people? What was the reason you were so successful? Lucky. <laughs> well, a little bit more than that, probably. <laughs> well, I, I, I had a, I had one uh, wonderful parents uh, who instilled a, a, a solid work ethic in me. I think, uh, and by the way, I never wing it. I've, I've always followed the prior preparation prevents poor performance mantra. I think those things uh, made a difference. But I was brought up to. Um, to believe that you, if you start something, you finish it, or you do everything you can to finish it, that sort of thing. But I was there at a wonderful time, uh, a time, to, and, and uh, here's what I really think was the best thing for me. I had tremendous associates and assistants. I think of people like Dick Darman and Bob Zellick and Bob Kimmett and Margaret Tutwiler and John Rogers and people like that who really, uh, they really performed beautifully. And I was the beneficiary of a lot of that. I think he'll be remembered as one of the most consequential foreign policy presidents of uh, the United States. Uh, he was sublimely trained for uh, the responsibilities he undertook as president. Given his character and given his nature, 
uh, he managed the end of the Cold War with a whimper and not a bang. And when I say that, it could have gotten pretty ugly uh, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And it took extreme deft strategic diplomacy to assure that the transition was nonviolent. He, he had a humility. Here's the most powerful elected official in the world, and yet he had this deep-seated humility, uh, which uh, was inculcated in him as a child. August 92, this photo now brings back a lot of happy memories. Thanks for going to Texas A&M to help open our school. Thanks so very much. Warm regards, George Bush. But political compromise? Uh, President Bush understood that, and, and uh, he got the... Uh, the uh, ADA uh, passed, uh, and uh, I think it's one of the most consequential uh, uh, domestic pieces of legislation that, um, you know, millions of Americans are, are benefiting from. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Joining us now is former Vice President Dick Cheney, who served as Defense Secretary to President H.W. Bush. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, we just heard so much of, of who 41 was as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his legacy for the country, he was in office at such a tremendous time of change in the world, of upheaval. You were at the Pentagon at that time. How do you think uh, the fact that he was part of that greatest generation, a World War II vet, that he had seen combat, how did all of that come together to inform his role uh, and in shaping foreign policy? Well, I think the nation was lucky to have him uh, at that particular time. Say he was the last World War II veteran, and um, but we also there were just remarkable events that took place during those four years. When you think about the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union going out of business, um, the um, uh, unification of Germany, uh, the uh, uh, liberation, if you will, of all those former Soviet uh, states in uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, big, big changes that uh, the situation had existed since the end of World War II and through the Cold War. And um, all of a sudden it ends. And he was in exactly the right spot when that happened, especially because he understood that uh, partly what was needed was to manage the U.S. reaction, that there was a way if you, if you overdid it, if, uh, say, people were dancing on the Berlin Wall, um, you could get into a situation where you'd make it tougher for Gorbachev to do what we wanted him to do, uh, which was end the Cold War. And uh, the president was masterful at, at shaping that relationship. Uh, I know as a secretary of defense, my interest uh, from a, a secretarial standpoint was I wanted to get military attaches and all of those embassies established in all those former Soviet states. Um, president made sure we didn't go too fast. He didn't want to be in a position where we were uh, embarrassing, if you will, Gorbachev, and that we could wait a few months in some of those cases to get that done. Um, but he was um, superb. And then his leadership in the Gulf War was, was really remarkable. Uh, I know Secretary Baker has talked about, as president, he was able to balance America's national interests along with our shared values. Right. Sometimes those things are described as being in uh, competition with each other. Mm -hmm. How do you think he was able to balance those? And, and is that something that we've lost? Well, he had this <clears throat> rare combination. I mean, he's a 58 combat missions in World War II, shot down over the Pacific, rescued uh, 
by an American submarine, came obviously very close to death. Um, and at the same time, his tremendous background um, in uh, diplomacy, the United Nations, ambassador to China. Uh, he had a, a set of relationships. I can remember the first weekend of the Gulf crisis. He sent me out to get permission from uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt for the deployment of U.S. forces. Uh, I turned around, I'd finished that, headed back, and he called me and said, no, we've got to stop in Morocco, because he'd just gotten hold of the king of Morocco and uh, wanted me to stop in and brief him and sign the Moroccans up. He was the, the best desk officer we ever had at the State Department, because <laughs> he knew all these folks. Very involved in the details. De- involved in the details, both with the use of the military as well as in the uh, the diplomacy. But on the, on the military side of it, he was uh, he was a great boss. Because uh, he basically give you your head, told me to go run the Defense Department. We had four million people in mm-hmm. defense in those days. And uh, How different was it, since you have such an unusual experience of having worked for both 41 and mm-hmm. 43, how different were father and son? Well, there, there were differences there, no question about it. But um, especially there were differences in the time. Uh, it was only you know eight years apart from right. the end of the first Bush administration and the beginning of the second um, but there had been some remarkable changes during that period of time. One of the things that had happened was 9-11. Mm-hmm. And we'd been hit and lost 3,000 Americans on 9-11. Um, uh, that was a, a big event between made things different in um, uh, 43's day than what they'd been in 41's day. Did that change your relationship with 41? Um, no, not really. Um, he... Uh, at one point, I was accused of uh, becoming, not use the phrase, iron ass. <laughs> he used that language that I'd changed from when I was Secretary of Defense working for him to when I was Vice President working for his son. And, uh, You're smiling at that description. Well, <laughs> I can laugh about it. Um, after he'd done it, uh, I got a note from him saying, Dear Dick, I did it. And then he went on to say nice things about me. But that year when the Alf Alpha dinner was held, here in Washington, mm-hmm. um, he arranged for me to be uh, sit right next to him at the head table. I mean, he wanted to make sure there was no uh, perpetual uh, aggravation there at all between 41 and myself. That's quite the, the personal anecdote there. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Vice President, for joining us and sharing your memories. Thank you, Margaret. There was always um, a, a commitment to being bold in the changes that, that we were going to propose, and it was it was Brent Scowcroft that led in terms of the the magnitude of the change the president would propose. I have chosen as my national security advisor Brent Scowcroft. He understands the White House. He understands the military, the State Department, the way the Hill works and the intelligence community as well. Hard to get these things. That's good. Brent Scowcroft was probably the president's favorite staff member. He had a great sense of humor. He worked from 6 in the morning till 11 every night. George Bush used to tease Brent Scowcroft all the time, claiming that he nodded off during cabinet meetings or nodded off on Air Force One. And Brent did. They were personal friends from the Ford administration. And Scowcroft had experience leading the national security structure for President Ford. Here's this guy whose fingerprints all over everything, but who doesn't want to be in the public eye, who gets very little attention. You're going to have a joint leadership meeting. You're going to talk about Nicaragua and, and, and really the 
the triumph of your strategy and congratulate the Congress. No, on really a bipartisan yeah. effort here. You were... I came in with a, with a fairly specific notion of what to do, and that was to change our policy toward the Soviet Union, which had been one based on arms control, to a policy focused primarily on Eastern Europe. President George Herbert Walker Bush made service, honor, and duty a central part of his presidency. It's a, it's a legacy of a different era of politics, less personal, and as my next guest says, less nasty. Joining me now, the former Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under George H.W. Bush, General Colin Powell. General Powell, thanks so much for being here. Pleasure to be here, Jay. Really, really appreciate it. Um, you were Chairman of the Joint Chiefs under uh, President George H.W. Bush. Breakup of the Soviet Union, invasion of Panama, war in Iraq. Why was he so successful in foreign affairs? Because he had more experience in foreign affairs than any president in history. <clears throat> he had been an envoy to China. He had been in war himself, as you well know. He had eight years as vice president of the United States and could watch what was going on in the Reagan years. Uh, he served at the UN. He served in the Congress. Uh, he was the director of the CIA. What other credentials do you need to be a successful president with respect to foreign policy? So he knew the world. <clears throat> he understood so many of the personalities who were working in the world at that point. And he was essentially fully prepared to be a foreign policy president. And he was a successful one, a very successful one. And it seemed as though, I mean, he helped negotiate the post-Cold War era. Mm -hmm. It was very important to him to build alliances, to invest in, to help out the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union uh, as it disintegrated, to help out. Uh, Germany as it as it unified international organizations, which today Republican voters and Republican presidents look at, you know, a scant look askance at. Uh, they were part of his blood. They were part of his blood, and maybe he also were, read the history of World War One. We didn't do this kind of thing, and we produced a situation that produced World War Two. But President Bush, you know, he wanted to talk about a new world order, and it was a term he used all the time. And by that he meant he didn't mean a world order where somebody dominates. He wanted all the nations of the world to come together and deal with each other in the spirit of, uh, of, of humility and the spirit of let's get the job done. And that's, that's the way he went about his uh, eight years as vice president and his four years as president. You, you talk about humility. Um, I heard Condi Rice on, on our networks telling the story to Jamie Gangel about after the Berlin Wall fell uh, and... She and others, maybe even you, wanted him to go to uh, Berlin. Uh, and I don't know if it would be a victory lap or whatever, but to talk about, you know, the United States won the Cold War, the Berlin Wall came down. And he said, no, this is a German moment. Let the Germans have their moment. You don't see that kind of humility. Very often. You don't see that kind of humility. And I saw, I wasn't in on that conversation, but I've had similar conversations. After Desert Storm, the American people were so overjoyed as to how quick the war went and how well our soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines performed that they wanted to celebrate it with parades. And the big parade was going to be in New York. Took a take parade up Broadway. And it was exciting. The troops were going to be there. The city was going nuts getting ready for it. And he wouldn't go. And when we talked about it, he said, this is something that belongs to the troops, to you, the other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary Cheney and General Schwarzkopf. I don't want to go. I'm not going to go. He went to the one in Washington, which is much more subdued a few months later. But it didn't surprise me in the least. This is the guy I got to know. And I didn't, didn't just know him as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But two years before that, the last two years of the Reagan-Bush administration, I was the national security advisor and deputy national security advisor. 
he and I had offices next to each other. So I got to know the gentleman very, very well and watch him and help him during the 88 campaign. So he always knew what was going on as he was out campaigning. We kept him fully informed of what was going on with foreign policy. And he was also a, a receptive person. You could go in and tell him anything, good news, bad news. He just wanted to chat. He was always available to you. And his humility demonstrated itself in so many different ways. I think I've told a story several times already this week about how uh, when he lost, uh, and I called him a day after the loss and told him that, you know, I feel sorry for you, boss, but sorry. And uh, he said, thanks very much, Colin. And an hour later, my wife, Alma, calls me and says, Barbara just called us, want the whole family, all of us, to go up to Camp David and spend the weekend with him. I said, no, isn't his family going to be there? No, they want us to be there. And so um, she called, Barbara called another hour later and said, and bring the kids. So we did. And there's myself, my wife, my son, my daughter-in-law, and our four-year-old grandson, Jeffrey. And the story we love to tell is when we were having lunch on the second day, uh, President Bush was anxious to finish lunch and go out and walk and do something. And so he started to hustle us along. And four-year-old Jeffrey raises his hand and says, I haven't finished my ice cream. <laughs> and President Bush says, well, okay. So we all sat down again. That's who he was. He was like that with everybody. That, that, that's, that, that humility, that humbleness, that don't take myself so seriously. I am the president, but I'm just one person. And I'm privileged to be in this position and privileged to be able to serve the American people and serve the cause of peace and justice around the world. And history has given me the opportunity to create a new environment, a new world of order and people respecting one another. And if you believe that, you can't say, why didn't he go to Berlin and, and, and you know, show off? Or why didn't he beat up the Russians? He didn't. He wanted to work with Gorbachev just as President Reagan had worked with Gorbachev for his time in office. And as a result, we left a situation that was very, very good. Now, there are a lot of people now saying, well, let's, we got to get out of this treaty, we got to get out of that treaty. Bad, terrible mistakes, which we will regret because they don't make sense. Well, the, the, Soviets, uh, the Soviets have been cheating on the INF Treaty, so let's get out of the INF Treaty. Oh, good, you do that, and guess what? The Soviets aren't cheating anymore because <laughs> there's no treaty to cheat. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the kind of thing we're doing, climate change, so many other areas where we are not demonstrating the kind of inspirational, broad-based leadership that we saw under Bush and Reagan. Um, you were privy to scenes um, behind, away from the cameras. And, you know, looking at the Bush cabinet, um, you had a lot of different views. Uh, Dick Cheney, you, Brent Scowcroft. How did he manage all these strong opinions and, and individuals with strong opinions? One of the things that helped is that each of us in that group, gang of eight or group of eight, as we called ourselves, we'd all work with each other in some other capacity. And so we knew each other and we could go into the Oval Office and he would sit in the chair in front of the fireplace, sort of just sitting there and chewing his lips a little bit. And we would argue out an issue. And we were all friends. But this was business, not friendship. So it wasn't unusual for Brent Scowcroft, National Security Advisor, to look across at me at the chairman and say, what are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about, Powell. And I would shoot right back at him. And the president would just watch all of this. It was so such, such a tight-knit group that Mr. Cheney, who represented the Defense Department, always, not me, I'm just his advisor, uh, he would say to the president, Mr. Mr. President, this is what we hold as the Defense Department position. This is our position. But Colin doesn't agree with everything. Colin, tell the president what you don't like. And I would. 
You don't see that in many organizations these days where you are free to speak. And Bush would just sit there listening and he'd enjoy the dialogue. He wouldn't say anything. And then he'd ask some questions and then he would either make a decision or it would come down the next day. He did it quickly. Sometimes it was very quickly. The night that we lost a soldier in Panama, Noriega's thugs killed this officer and was abusing some of our families. And that was the we had had enough of Noriega. President Bush did not know what new plan that the Joint Chiefs of Staff and I had come up with, along with General Thurman in Panama. But it was not just to go after Noriega, but to take the entire Panamanian Defense Force out of action so we didn't have to worry about it again. And there was a president waiting to take over Panama if Noriega went away. And so Saturday night is when it happened. Sunday morning, uh, about mid-morning, we went to the White House to brief the president on what this new plan was. And I took him through it. I said, it's not take out one guy, we're going to take out an entire force. Mm -hmm. And we're going to put in about 23,000 soldiers and Marines and airmen. And everybody kind of looked at me a little oddly. Uh, But I said, this will do it. And he asked a couple of questions. Brent asked some questions. Jim Baker asked a few questions. Uh, And then the president just didn't need any more information. He said, do it. Four days later, we were in Panama. And several days after that, we had succeeded in getting rid of Noriega and in... uh, restoring Panama on a, on a path, putting it back in a path to democracy and freedom. And we left. There aren't any American soldiers in Panama anymore. There had been for hundreds of years, or a long time, let me put it that way. Uh, and that's what he wanted to do, and that's what we also did in Desert Storm. He defined the mission. There was no open-endedness to it. It was a defined mission, and everybody could support it. Almost every nation in the world supported that. We had a U.N. resolution supporting it. We had Congress supporting it. We had our allies supporting it, 500,000 American troops, 200,000 others. It's hard to believe now, but we had a division from Syria. We had a division from Egypt that were under Schwarzkopf's command. And the only constraint on them, they would go into Kuwait to kick out the Iraqis, but they wouldn't go into Iraq. Fine, we we can arrange that. So we had quite a chessboard of different units that were there. 500,000 Americans, 200,000 allies, the whole world supporting us. And I'm probably the only chairman who ever could go up to a president and say, I guarantee the outcome. We had we had boxed the Iraqi army and they couldn't do anything but sit there and get beaten. And they were beaten rather quickly and uh, rather decisively. People have argued, why'd you go to Baghdad? We were never going to Baghdad. The president did not want to become the occupier of Iraq. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do what had to be done, kick the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, bring the government of Kuwait back and make sure they're secure. And that's what we did. General Colin Powell, our, our deepest condolences on the loss of your friend. Thank you so much for taking some time today. To Thank you so much, Jake. He, he meant a lot to me. He was a, not just my boss, my friend. Condoleezza Rice served on President George Herbert Walker Bush's National Security Council. She was his senior director of Soviet and East European affairs and special assistant to the president for national security affairs. Later on, Rice was secretary of state and national security advisor under his son, President George W. Bush. She's with us now for an interview you'll only see, you'll see first on CBS This Morning. Secretary Rice, good morning. Good morning. One of the measures of leadership is that leaders make the people who work for them better. Yes. How did George, what did you learn from George Herbert Walker I Bush? I learned from uh, President Bush how to be a good public servant and what that meant. I learned to care about relationships before you needed to call on somebody. I remember as a young staffer, I got this note early in February. It said, I want to congratulate Helmut Kohl on his victory in the Bundestag. And I was the specialist. I thought, 
what victory in the Bundestag. <laughs> but he was reaching out before he had to ask Helmut Kohl to do something difficult for German unification. And that's who he was. He absolutely valued uh, relationships and uh, and valued people. And I, I think I learned a lot from him about that. I, I love so much about how he loved his family. I saw an interview that he did with Jenna, his granddaughter, where he said, I used to fear death, but I don't anymore because I think the afterlife is going to be pretty good. Yeah. But he really loved being with his family. Can you Tell us family stories. Well, first of all, they were, they were people of great faith, and mm-hmm. he was a man of great faith, and so I'm sure he was actually looking forward to seeing Mrs. Barbara again. Yeah. And, and, and they his daughter are, Robin, And, and his daughter, Robin, yeah. who he grieved for throughout his life. But I remember being up at Kennebunkport for a church service with them, and we were sitting outside, and, and the priest was a little bit kind of new age, as somebody who was visiting, and he said, now, I mean, nobody, does anybody out there have a perfect family? And it was, of course, meant ironic. And George H.W. Bush raised his hand and said, I do. Well, (laughs) of course, he knew that they were not a perfect family. But it was, to me, a statement of his unconditional love for his children, uh, for his entire family. And I think one of the reasons that I bonded with them was because I had that sense of family. Uh, He came to California um, after I had left government. He met my father. It was one of the great moments for my dad. And so family uh, is just so important to the Bushes, and I love that. President Bush and his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, credited you um, with helping them write their book about the end of the Cold War. How did you help President Bush reflect on that era? Only one-term president, but one of the most significant periods in American history. Well, just to help remind uh, them how really significant it was, because, in fact, these are people who—it was never about them. Uh, when that famous story of after the Berlin Wall fell, uh, all of us rushing to the Oval Office and saying, Mr. President, you have to go to Berlin for Truman and for Kennedy and for Reagan. And he said, what would I do, dance on the wall? And then he said something else. He said, this is a German moment, not an American moment. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, uh, noticed that uh, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, is here. He really was in so many ways the father of German unification because he had to bolster Helmut Kohl. He had to uh, bring um, Margaret Thatcher and uh, Mitterrand along, who were somewhat uh, nervous about the unification of Germany. But it was never about him. And I think that's what made him such a great uh, president at a time when the Soviet Union had to be quietly uh, put to rest. To be triumphalist at that moment would have been very dangerous. It would never have occurred to him to be triumphalist. That's what was the his best quality right and what would make him cranky? I'm curious. We hear yeah. so many wonderful yeah. stories about him. Well, humility was his best quality. Uh-huh. Um, I also remember telling him that Gorbachev, do you remember, Mr. President, that Gorbachev made his last call to you before the Soviet Union went out of existence. He made it to you. And he thought nothing remarkable about that. Mm-hmm. So that's who he was. What made him cranky? Being late, or anybody else who was late, and he shares that with his son. Did you ever play speed golf with him? Speed golf. Yeah, I was going to ask. I, I, I did play speed golf with him up at uh, Cape Arundel Golf Course. And what and, does that uh, mean, guys? Well, well she'll uh, explain. It, it means that you you barely hit your shot before you're moving on to oh, the next okay. one, and you really don't let anybody else hit their shot okay. before they're, you're moving on. I can remember putting with him. <clears throat> you know, reading a putt. Uh, what was that? You just kind of putted and moved on. 
Uh, he never wasted a moment, even on the golf course. Right. It's almost like polo out of a golf cart, oh. but you do actually get out of the cart. Returning, okay. <laughs> returning, returning back to his presidency, though, you talk about humility. What would he say now about, I mean, obviously he's being eulogized yeah. and remembered, but wouldn't he also want people to know about the reality of some of the decisions you make and the toughness of it? And it's not all roses and perfect decisions. I think that's such an important point, because as we look back, we see a road that worked out so well. Germany unified. Eastern Europe was liberated. The Soviet Union had a peaceful death. That was thousands of little decisions along the way, some of them incredibly consequential, some of them very tough. Do you tell the Germans, you know, you really do have to stay in NATO as a unified Germany? Can you find a way to deal with the Soviet Union that is collapsing in a way that's with dignity, but without giving up on the principles uh, that the United States had held since the end of World War II? And uh, these decisions, in retrospect, look easy. In fact, they were hard and they were tough. But George H.W. Bush was always out ahead of us in some ways because he had principles that led him. Mm. Uh, We didn't spend much time thinking, should we unify Germany? Because he had great faith in a democratic Germany that had for more than 45 years been a good ally of the United States. And so uh, that is the the lesson of this, that uh, great public servants uh, do their jobs in some ways so well that they achieve the goals. And when we look back, uh, we don't even realize how hard it was. It's been fun to look back at his life, Connie. And I think if you live to 94, for the most part, healthy, and at the end you die with the people that love you love and love you, including your dog, that's a really beautiful way to go, I think. Absolutely, it is. And I think that uh, this was a life, his was a life of consequence. That's quite clear in Mm -hmm. his presidency. You know, even domestically, the Americans with Disabilities Act, how many Americans today can go to a football game or uh, to a restaurant because of that? Uh, A life of consequence, but also a life surrounded by family and friends. One of the things that I admire about uh, the Bushes in general, but uh, him in particular, friends from decades and decades and decades ago. When your friends stay with you, uh, no matter how famous or how much how much difficulty you get into, you know that you've uh, lived a, a great life. Your race has been run, as um, as the Bible would say, you've run your race well. Yeah, there's yeah. a story about the caretaker who took care of the place at Kenny Bunkport, who was invited today and was very heartened to be included. It's yeah. it's, it's yeah. amazing, and be, there will be people, people there from Kenny Bunkport. There will be there people there from from Texas, yeah. and there will be world leaders Thank there. You. Thank you, Secretary Thank Rice. You. As Commander-in-Chief, I can report to you our armed forces fought with honor and valor. And as President, I can report to the nation, aggression is defeated, the war is over. President Bush announcing the end of the Gulf War. And joining me now, two men who knew him well, former Vice President Dick Cheney, who served as Bush's Secretary of Defense during that war, and James Baker, who was the Secretary of State. Gentlemen, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Secretary Baker, let me start with you. You have called George Bush one of our most underrated presidents. What is it that you think people failed to understand about George Bush, and why do you think so many people missed it? Well, I'm not sure why they missed it, uh, Chris, except perhaps because he uh, was not reelected. He was a one-term president, uh, in my view, and I would bet this is true with uh, Dick Cheney as well. He was the very best one-term president this country's ever had, and uh, perhaps one of the very best presidents of all time. But 
He didn't blow his own horn. He was he. Uh, one of his uh, wonderful character traits was to let other people take credit. Uh, that was something he was brought up with, and that's the way he he operated. But he was an extraordinarily, if you think about it, you go back and look at the record. He was an extraordinarily consequential uh, president of the United States, particularly in the arena of foreign affairs. <laughs> Let me pick up on that with Vice President Cheney. I think it's fair to say that clearly the centerpiece of the Bush presidency was the victory in the Gulf War over Saddam Hussein. What stands out for you about the way that he led that fight? And what about the controversy that we continue to hear his decision not to go on to Baghdad and topple Saddam? Well, in terms of uh, his leadership, um, important thing to remember, Chris, is what we put together during those years with Scowcroft at NSC and Jim at State, uh, me at Defense, and then, of course, the President's Commander-in-Chief. We'd all worked together back during the Ford years. And uh, it was, in my opinion, I'm probably biased, but uh, about the most successful national security, foreign affairs, defense team that uh, had been my experience to, to watch operate. No, um, you're absolutely accurate, Dick. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, well, the president obviously was a key part of it. And uh, Jim and Brent and I would have breakfast every Wednesday morning. And most of the time we could solve our problems among us. Once in a while, we'd have to take it to him and then he'd resolve it. But he was a, a consequential leader, as, as you've said. His knowledge uh, of uh, foreign leaders, people he'd worked with over the years, his understanding of the military, his willingness to support the military. Uh, we gave him a very long list of things we wanted to have in the Gulf before we launched the offensive weapons. He didn't turn them down on anything. He approved all of them and said, all right, now show me how you're going to do it. He was a great leader. Se Sec Secretary Baker, one of the things that strikes me about George Bush is that he didn't take the easy path. He left Yale to volunteer and to become the n youngest Navy pilot. He left Connecticut. He could have had a very comfortable life there to strike out on his own and become an oil man in Texas. What do you think that was about? Well, I think it was about taking on the hard challenges. Uh, he was not afraid to take risks. No risk, no reward kind of thing. But let me, let me say a, a, a quick word, if I might, Chris, about the centerpiece, as you said, of, of his foreign policy presidency, uh, the war, uh, the first Gulf War, which was, in my view, a textbook example of a way to fight a war. You tell the world what you're going to do. You get the world, all the rest of the world behind you to do it. You do it. You do that and nothing more. Uh, you bring the troops home, and then you get other countries to pay for it. We've never done that before. That is a textbook example of the way to fight a war. But that, while that may be the centerpiece of his foreign policy uh, uh, accomplishments, it certainly wasn't a, the only one. And you look at uh, the fact that he was able to uh, to manage right. and end a peaceful end of the Cold War. That was a huge, huge accomplishment. Mr. Vice President, in 2015, uh, President Bush told a biographer that he worried that you had become too much of a hardliner in his son's White House, and he called your approach, excuse me, his quote, uh, iron ass. And I, I wonder, one, what you thought of the criticism, and two, what did that do to your relationship with George Bush? Well, um, 
First of all, uh, I was uh, more, I guess, of an iron ass when uh, I was vice president. The thing that had intervened between my time at defense for uh, 41 and my time as vice president was 9-11. We'd had 3,000 of our people killed on 9-11, more people than we lost at Pearl Harbor. And we moved, I think, legitimately into a wartime setting rather than simple law enforcement. Um, I think it was important to do that. Now, after uh, he made those comments, um, he uh, sent me a note. One of the notes are, are great to have. This one said, Dear Dick, I did it. And then he went on at great length to us. Tell me what a great American I was. Um, but he also, that year, we went to the annual Alpha Alpha Club. He enjoyed those dinners. And uh, he invited me to sit at the head table with him at the dinner. And that sort of dampened down any notion that there was a fundamental break between uh, Bush and Cheney. Hey, Ted, Chris, that's the kind of person well, he was. I'm, I'm, glad, you know, I'm glad to hear this. That, let me say, that's the kind of person George Bush was. There was a story uh, early in his administration uh, in 1989 to the effect generally that, well, the National Security Council's running foreign policy, the State Department's out of it, they're not doing And I got a phone call from the president. He said, he said, Bake, I want you and Susan to come up to Camp David with me this weekend. We did so, and there was never another story like that for the entire four years. That's the kind of person he was. Secretary Baker, George Bush was not just your colleague, not just your boss. Uh, He was your dear friend for more than 60 years, and we have learned in the last few hours that you were with him when he passed away on Friday night to the degree you feel comfortable doing it. Can you share with us his last moments? Yeah, he had a very gentle and peaceful passing, uh, Chris. Uh, only one of his children was in uh, living in Houston, uh, Neil Bush. Neil and his wife Maria were there. My wife Susan and I, uh, his, his rector from our church, St. Martin's Church in Houston. Uh, the doctor, some of the wonderful aides that took care of him uh, in his later years. And it was a sweet, it was a sweet situation. Uh, uh, they made arrangements for all of his children to call in to, to, in effect, tell him goodbye. And his last words, the last words uh, George Bush ever said were, I love you. And he said those words to 43, George Bush, President George Bush 43, who had called in to say, Dad, I love you. Uh, I will see you on the other side. And uh, And President Bush said, I love you, and those were his last words. Another tender moment at, uh, about that, uh, Chris, was that the, ten, the Irish tenor Ronan Tynan was in town. He'd come to town just to pay a, a courtesy call on President Bush, and he happened to be there, and he sang a couple of songs for President Bush on that last evening, and he sang one of them was Silent Night, and as he was singing, President Bush was mouthing the words of Silent Night. He he uh, he had a very gentle and and easy passing, the kind we ought to all hope we have. Secretary Baker, Mr. Vice President, we want to thank you both so much. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. It really is a remarkable team that this remarkable man put together, and they changed the world in, in remarkable ways. And when he passed in 2018, I think it it really did signal 
with the possible exception of Bob Dole, which really signaled the end of the World War II generation of leaders at, at the helm. And it was interesting to hear Nora O'Donnell on CBS talk about that we were mourning more when Bush died than uh, than just one man passing and this great American president. We were also uh, mourning an era of, of leadership in this country that I think we all miss. And I, I've told people this, you know, I got started when I was nine years old in politics. And I used to think from nine to 18 really didn't matter. I was a kid. I was just a kid watching, you know, I'm, I'm the only person on earth that was ever for Ted Kennedy and Ronald Reagan in the same election cycle. You know, I, you know it wasn't like I had a lot of deep thought. And that really what I would consider my time in politics was 1996 or 92 and on uh, when Bush was running the second time. Uh, and when Bob Dole ran and I was in college working on campaigns and then my own time. But it was only toward the end of my career when I when I became and I think you can pick this up if you listen to some of the earlier podcasts that we did um, after January the 6th or when we redid it, at my disgust at the leadership that we've had. It's incompetence will drive you crazy as compared to what our podcast is centered on, whether it be Richard Nixon or Lyndon Johnson or, or the War II generation. Um, and then, of course, here with George Bush, th- this principled-centered leadership that found solutions to problems and despite having maybe philosophical differences, figured out a way to make things work, to have good government, impressive legislation, um, and a country that worked and a country that be- became the you know it was the american century we we became the leaders of the entire world under the leadership of this generation of leaders uh from franklin roosevelt and truman and eisenhower who fought the war in, as leaders or from kennedy on through george bush who actually were the guys in the trenches who fought the war they came back with a sense of unity and it, this was one country and uh we had to make it work and that's their great gift to us if we'll learn from it. And from George W. Bush, his son, there is not only a reverence for his father, but I think the point he tries to make is that we are mourning something greater than one man in some ways. We are mourning an ideal because uh, President George H.W. Bush was the last of the greatest generation, a man who in every one of his decisions put country above himself. John Meacham has said that to his biographer, that in every one of those decisions, he tried to choose the country first, all of the decision to raise taxes, which ultimately cost him his own reelection and arguably led to a fracturing of the Republican Party that has lasted until today. But in George W. Bush, he talks, too, about the decisions his father made, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, talking about reshaping a global world order as one of the most consequential presidents in American history. So and there's some fun stories that have never been told before that you'll hear as well tonight. Bob, you were telling me something similar to what Nora just picked up on there, that for you, you saw uh, H.W. as a public servant more than a politician, per se. Well, the fact is he was a much better public servant than he was a politician because it was part of his upbringing. His mother had brought him up saying, we never brag on our own achievements. Uh, That's just something that the Bushes don't do. So it was always hard uh, for George H.W. Bush to to push his own case because he thought it, uh, it reflected poorly on it. 
He also suffered an enormous loss in his life, Mm -hmm. multiple occasions, you know, from when he was the youngest pilot in the Navy. He lost his two crewmates. That haunted him for his entire life. He lost his daughter at the age of three. He lost his first two Senate races. He lost a presidency. There are so many losses throughout his life that I think many people can relate to having own loss in their life. But how did he deal with those losses, that resilience that also, I think, shaped in some ways his humility? Mm -hmm. Bob, you knew the Bush family for decades. What was he like as a person? He was just a nice person. I mean, if if you would be around him, uh, he'd say, you know, "Have a cup of coffee," or you know, I mean, he was he was just uh, just Didn't a regular guy. Seriously. And and his uh, son was very much like him. I, I was uh, listening to, to Nora's uh, interview there. You know, presidents come under fire, and. When George Bush would come under fire, people say, oh, it's too bad. And, and you know what he always said? He said, nobody asked me to run for mm-hmm. office. I decided to do this. This is part of it. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.